Welcome to Bloombox Growing Deeper. I'm Sarah. I'm Hannah. And we're on a mission to help you become the gardener you want to be. Welcome back, everybody, to Bloombox Growing Deeper. It is officially winter. We have made it past the solstice. And what's the best thing to do in the winter when you can't garden? I think it's read. Does that a, do you agree, Sarah? I was going to say sit in a hot tub, but <laughs> I mean, you can read in a hot tub. Last year, Costco had a hot tub for sale, and so many times I thought about it, <laughs> I went for it. But Sarah and I are not here alone today because we needed to bring Michelle to Russia in to talk about books. So Michelle, how about you introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Michelle. I'm in communications and event coordination here at NSA. I'm still fairly new, three months or so into the job, and I'm happy to be here. And she's a reader, so that's important for I this. am a reader. Yes. And she's a writer, which makes it even better. So we're going to talk about books because we know that maybe you have a little extra time over over the holidays. You might have a little break where you can do some reading and you might have some holiday money gift cards burning a hole in your pocket and you want to buy some books. So we are here to help. And to be clear, we're kind of talking about not like gardening how to books, but gardening adjacent books. I like to read books that just make me think of plants, um, because if I read the how-to books too early in the winter, then I just get antsy, and I want to go outside and work. So I like to spend the early winter just kind of remembering that plants exist and how much I love them, and then I'll save those like actually technical learning books for closer to, to the time to do the work. So let's jump into it. Are you both ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, I think we should start with some nonfiction books. So, uh, Sarah, do you want to do a nonfiction first? I have one nonfiction book on my list, and it is for kids. It's called Oh Say Can You Seed, and it's a, it's a Dr. Seuss book. It's not written by Dr. Seuss, but it's in that um, like early reading, you know, with the hat in the in that section of the library. Yeah. The cat in the hat section is what I think of it as. That's probably, there's probably a librarian ready to correct me. But it is rhyming. It is, it has got the cat in the hat in it. And he's talking to those two kids from the cat in the hat books about seeds and how they turn into plants. And the storyline is, is a poetic it rhymes and it runs pretty simply through how a seed turns into a plant makes a fruit and makes a new seed. But Along with that, there are all of these illustrations that are then labeled with like extra information. Like, did you know that root hairs are actually where the water comes into the plant and the bigger roots are mainly structural and starch storing? Um, so I, it's like a very all age teaching book, I think. I think you could read this with very little kids that um, mostly enjoy the rhyme and pick up a few things. And you could go into upper elementary school where they're actually learning the parts of the plant. Um, this came, I, I have my son signed up for the, you know, Dr. Seuss delivery every couple months. And when this one showed up, I snagged it and it went on, it went on mom's bookshelf because I love it. And he'll be able to read it someday. So cute. It is so really is it cute. Actually, the cat in the hat. 
It is actually The Cat in the Hat as a character, but I think it's a pretty recently written book because it's it's written by a different Bonnie Worth. It's not written by Dr. Seuss or any of his pseudonyms. Right. So I think it's it's published by whoever holds that copyright, but it's not by him. The Seuss Foundation. Okay. Michelle, do you have a nonfiction book or we can talk about because we put a couple of memoirs with that ended up both being on both of our lists. So how about, do you want to talk about one? Yeah. So I have a couple books that kind of cross over between nonfiction and memoir. Um, one is called Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous mm-hmm. Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And I read this one a couple of years ago. So I would define it as part memoir because she has a very personal way of weaving stories and personal stories and Native American stories because she's um, uh, Potawatomi. So she has uh, Native American stories as well, but she's also a trained botanist. Mm -hmm. So she brings that scientific knowledge in as well. And she kind of weaves it all together and history and naturalism and it's a really beautiful book and highly engaging. So it's sciency, but for the layperson. So it's not intimidating. It's not too scientific. And it's really beautifully done. It just makes you love the natural world even more than you already do when you're done reading it. They just published a Braiding Sweetgrass for uh, young readers I edition. I saw that. Yeah. So if you have like, I think it was middle school age. So if you have that age group that you're trying to get, you know, get into different types of reading, this might be a good option too. Yeah. That's a, that's a great idea. I know I've seen this book come up in NSA in statewide Arboretum conversations many times. I think it's, it's well loved by anybody who, uh, loves the natural world, but also wants to learn a bit, little bit more about the Native American use of plants in a super approachable way. Yeah, absolutely. And I posted about this book on our social media channels on Indigenous Peoples Day, and it was one of our most commented on, shared, and liked posts. So it really resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's a it's a wonderful book. That actually is on my list, but I haven't read it yet. You can borrow my copy. Okay, great. (laughs) Yeah, so I need to give it a go. So on my list for same, I don't have direct nonfiction, but more um, memoir type. And we both had these on our list is The Dirty Life. And that is a fun title, (laughs) I think. Mm -hmm. But the full title is The Dirty Life on Farming, Food, and Love. And it's by Kristen Kimball. And she actually wrote a second uh, follow-up book to it. It's called Good Husbandry, Growing Food, Love, and Family on Essex Farm. And these are both excellent books about farming in a non commercialized way, I guess I would say. Uh, They're very focused on subsistence farming and more CSA farming because they they sell CSAs. And I just loved her storytelling. I don't know about you. Yeah, I loved it. She's funny. So she's not uh, 
sort of a born and bred farmer. She's a journalist who's living in New York City, and she ends up going up to upstate New York and interviewing this farmer and then falls in love, and he falls in love with her. And so she leaves her whole life in New York City and moves up to, it's way up in New York, like near Lake Champlain. And she starts farming with him and is just learning it kind of from the ground up, and she has no idea what she's doing, and so she's making tons of mistakes. And But she's very very funny and relatable and yeah it's just it's a really great story and they're old school to the point of still having draft horses that pull the plows so like non-tractor using and i think one of my favorite from her first book one of my favorite stories is when because she's in charge of the hogs at that farm that's kind of her what she took on and they get out of the barn and she has to figure out how to like create a shoot to get them back in and it's just her writing is so fun to, to read. Yeah, I agree. It's mm-hmm. a good one. I haven't read it for a few years. I think I might need to come back to it. Yeah, it's, it's a good one, especially for the winter when you just want to think about having your hands in the dirt. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I'm low on nonfiction. Uh, <laughs> so I have another one. <laughs> um, Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Day of Food Life by Barbara Kingsolver. So this one's been around for a while. Um, gosh, maybe even maybe even 10 years or so. It's it's definitely been maybe even longer. It's been around for a while. So it's kind of similar to The Dirty Life. Um, it's a blend of memoir, kind of journalistic investigation. So Barbara Kingsolver and her family live in Arizona, and then they relocate to the Appalachian Mountain area where her husband's family, I think, owned a farm. And they decide they're going to live off the land and eat only locally grown, sustainable food for a year. And so it's kind of about that experiment, um, which ended up changing their whole family's lives. I think their daughters, their children who are now grown have gone into that kind of business themselves. And it really had a, a remarkable impact on their family. And some of you might be familiar with Barbara Kingsolver because she's a really well-known um, fiction writer, novelist. She's written a ton of books, um, Prodigal Summer, yeah, and Poison Poisonwood Bible. Bible. Yeah, <laughs> is amazing. And I think a lot of people read that in high school. But I wonder if Prodigal Summer, some of that inspiration came from her experience that she, in this memoir as well, because yeah. it takes place in Appalachia. That book was amazing, and it has a really... Um, That would be another good book for this list because it has an amazing storyline about butterfly migration, which is um, fictional in that area. The butterfly migration wouldn't happen quite like that. So she kind of created it for the storyline, but it serves to teach people about the importance of preserving along migration routes. Yeah, I think a lot of her books have nature themes that are kind of threaded through them. And I read Prodigal Summer, but I have terrible retention, so now I hardly remember what it's about at all. So another one that I need to come back to. I think one of my favorite storylines, because especially Barbara Kingsolver likes to focus on varying perspectives of the same story. And Prodigal Summer covers that a lot. And one of my favorite storylines in that is the um, female, like, 
what is she, maybe like a station ranger high up in the mountains in the Appalachia and just her experience of being alone most of the time and getting to know the forest in that way uh, was really interesting to me. Yeah, I have a vague recollection of that part. I have another uh, nonfiction, and that is This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. And you might remember this because, especially if you were in Nebraska, it got a little controversial a few years back because it was named like the Nebraska State Book of the Year or something like that. And the governor refused to to acknowledge it because it is... um, pretty strongly against the Keystone XL pipeline. And it is written by a journalist who came really to Nebraska to kind of investigate farming life and stumbled upon this Keystone XL controversy that was happening for many years and I think still has divided communities in Nebraska and farmers especially. And so he kind of wrote about the history of farming in Nebraska, but also focused on a family that was very um, leading the way against the pipeline and using eminent domain to take away land from farmers to do that. And it I think it's wonderfully written. I think it really helps understand the line between what farmers have to do to make a living um, and kind of how they can often be vilified by folks who are trying to say we shouldn't use herbicides and we shouldn't use pesticides and things like that. So I think he really helps non-farmers understand the life of farmers and and how many of them are very environmentally focused. That sounds good. I haven't heard of it, despite the controversy. Yeah, it was that. it was a big thing because maybe it was even like the governor's arts awards or something, and so he refused to acknowledge it and do any press about it. Which is too bad because it sounds like it could be very eye-opening for people who don't know like it would be a great book for me to read because I'm not a native Nebraskan I don't understand farming and it would probably open up my world a little bit and my perception of farming yeah I think it would be very it's a unifying book to me I think it helps understand helps you understand varying perspectives and it helps you understand you know this family is generations of farmers very focused on living off their land but also, and, and their youngest daughter is now taking over parts of the land and farming it and got married to somebody who wasn't familiar with farming, if I remember correctly. Um, but they, that's a focus of theirs, but they also want to own their land. They don't want it to be taken away and they want to be able to manage it the way they think it should be managed and not be told how to manage it. So I think we've covered mostly our nonfiction, so let's get into fiction. And Sarah just told me to go faster, but this is going to be hard because <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot that I really like. So, uh, Sarah, how about you start us? Set the, set the pace for us. 
Okay, so this is my my favorite section. I love historical fiction. Um, partly, I mean, you've heard me talk about sewing, and that's one of the reasons why I love historical fiction, because um, the modern era is not super fun for sewing clothes. So I, I love historical fiction and historical costuming. And with that comes often a lot more descriptions of plants and the natural world. And... So my favorite is not obviously a gardening book, but it's Anne of Green Gables and the whole series. I love the just complete imagery of the seasons, of the natural landscape, of the plants, and how they are part of people's everyday lives, even people who don't in any way work with plants. I am not a big historical fiction person, but I do have a historical fiction on our list because when I was a kid, I loved Little House on the Prairie. And in honor of, uh, I think it was like an anniversary recently of Little House on the Prairie, uh, somebody revisited it. It's called Caroline Little House Revisited. And it's told from the perspective of her mother. And it is set at the time when they were living on the Nebraska Prairie, when they were homesteading on the Nebraska Prairie. And hearing about those, I think Kansas, Kansas, Sarah says it was Kansas Prairie. (laughs) I think she was in Nebraska for a short amount of time. I'm going to claim her. Um, (laughs) Kansas, Kansas Prairie. Um, Anyways, I think they were they were there for a very short time. And so it's really interesting to hear that story back that is told, you know, she was writing it many years later, Laura Ingalls Wilder, but it's like child perspective. And there were some inconsistencies there. Like they knew that her littlest sister was born at this time, but she, in her books, she wasn't. So they changed some things in this book to more accurately line up with the historical records. So it was just really interesting. You can hear about the plants and the animals of the prairie that they were experiencing. They experienced a prairie fire during that time so i i would recommend it as a good historical fiction especially if you liked the little house books well i loved the little house books i actually tried to read them i have two boys who are now grown up but when they were young i tried to read one of the little house in the prairie books to one of my boys and he was just having none of it and i was so disappointed i did the same thing with the secret garden too which i think is on several of our our lists right were you going to talk about the secret garden yes I have okay that one. yeah i tried reading yeah. that one to one of my kids too and oh no nope. i know my dad read alternating through the winters he would read aloud little house and narnia the the whole series he'd read them aloud to us and we would work on our we would color or work on our arts and crafts projects and stuff and so sometimes he'll still read sections to us as adults just because of the memory but uh I mean we all listen to them they're not necessarily they're not just boy or girl books but I don't know if we would have loved them as much alone it was very much a family activity I love that that is such a wonderful memory such a good tradition yeah yeah I was absolutely enchanted with the secret garden when I was young. And then I recently bought myself a copy within this last year and reread it. Mm -hmm. And it 
it stands up. It holds. It does. It's still it does. good. Yeah. It's there is the one scene that is just always in my mind and every spring comes back so strong is that first time when she sees the little green sprouts and she is pulling back the moldy winter leaves to give them each a fresh spot. That scene was so vivid to me even as a kid. I can't remember going out and looking for something to clean up because that was just such a strong strong picture that yeah. the author created. Yeah, strong visual. So good. Okay. Um, I have one that I think is a little bit different. I like to read a lot of books that are maybe future focused, I guess. So I have a favorite um, like futuristic sci-fi author. Their name is Becky Chambers. And one book that they just put out last I think it was just this last year, and now the sequel is out. It just came out a couple months ago, and it is called the Monk and Robot series. And the first one, I know it sounds crazy. <laughs> the first one is called Psalm for a Wild Built, Psalm for the Wild Built, and the next one is called Prayer for a Crown for the Crown Shy. And it is focused in a future Earth where we have created robots to do all of our work and the robots kind of rebel but they don't rebel in a violent way they just retreat to the forest and we come up with an agreement where we will not use any type of technology so also humans kind of revert back to a like very village like doing everything with your hands type of thing and this monk who is a tea monk actually so it's perfect for Sarah. He travels around and gives people tea. That's his whole job. I want that job. <laughs> but he gets, he wants to spend time in the forest. So he travels to the forest because he wants to hear a specific cricket that only is on this one um, mountain. And as he's traveling through the forest, he runs into a robot. And this robot has been sent to see how the humans are doing because the robot said that they would check in periodically. And it is a wild built robot. So when the robots break down, they die. And then the other robots come together, use the pieces and make a new robot out of them. And whatever they see first is their name. So his name is Wild Mushroom Cap. <laughs> and it's just a beautiful book about getting away from technology, meeting new people and new cultures and teaching each other because then they, they have to work together because they make an agreement that the monk will go see the crickets and the, and the robot will help him get there. But then the monk has to take him, the robot, to the people to see how the people are doing. So it is also a novella. So it's very short. The, I listened to an audiobook. It was only four hours. Mm, so nice. It's a it's a quick one. So is it YA? Is it adult? It's definitely adult. There's language in it. Um, they don't. The author doesn't shy away from lots of f bombs. Honestly, it, mm -hmm. <laughs> so That's that can be a little jarring <laughs> <laughs> if you're not expecting it. So, but I, I it is wonderful. It's definitely for adults, though. Yeah, that sounds good. My, another one I have on my list is called The Seed Woman. And this is set in the 18th or the 19th century, the 1800s, um, and it's in like kind of Central Europe, and it focuses on the people whose whose livelihood was made by traveling around and trading in seed, and so um, it 
I just thought it was really cool. It gets very in-depth into their lifestyle, not so much into each of the plants, but they were sustaining most of Europe by by traveling and trading in seed. That's where people's food came from. And then they also traded in like tulip bulbs and things from the Netherlands. And um, it was just fascinating because I had not thought about that, that there would be the seed growers and these were the seed traders because obviously they couldn't be the same people um, because you would need to be, you know, growing the land. But it was a it was a really dangerous job because they had to do their job through the winter so that people had their seeds for the spring and so they were traveling the mountains of Europe in the winter um, and it was just it was fascinating to kind of see that just a really deep look into a very tiny part of history that actually everything depended on that's really interesting so i wonder were there actually women who did that job do you think so is that based in reality, that part she is the. I don't know. Ooh, I know. I'm. Just <laughs> I know curious. that that the book sets it up as primarily a men's job, mm-hmm. um, while the women stayed home and and raised the children because, with the dangers, there would be, um, you know, an age limit to being able to travel. But that was they. The book sets it up as that being the typical but that there were women that traveled with their husbands and there were women who inherited the businesses from their fathers or their husbands when they passed away. Mm -hmm. And so there are women doing this job in the book. Mm -hmm. I don't know how historically accurate that is, but I think that a lot of times we look at the social norm and say it was everybody, but the reality was they would have done what they needed to do to survive. And Mm -hmm. so if you have... They would have done the job if they needed to do the job. And that's how the book is portraying it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think with with historical fiction, too, you can take a little Mm -hmm. poetic license there. So even if it wasn't primarily women, which it probably wasn't primarily women, that is the beauty about writing fiction because you You can can have a woman do the job. Yeah, Yeah. And I love that. And I did just learn when I looked it up for today that it's it's number one in a saga so now i have some more books to go find i love that i love a series especially in the winter just go from one to the next to the next that's good what's your next pick michelle well i have a couple um i have one which is probably familiar to some listeners it's called the overstory by richard powers this one won the pulitzer prize in 2019 so it's pretty well known. It is, you have to be ready to really sit down for the long haul because it's over 500 pages. Um, I did read it. It is a very complex, complicated, multi-layered novel. Um, it follows the story of nine characters. It spans more than 100 years. Lots of themes, environmental activism, industrialism, capitalism, politics, nature, science, history. I mean, it basically covers everything. Um, If you have the patience to kind of immerse yourself into it and then stay with it, it is it's an amazing book. And I think there's a metaphor there um, with the the metaphor of the trees, sort of the complex root system, the branches, the canopy. Um, sort of serving 
kind of as the um, overarching theme, metaphorical theme for the book and the way that the characters are, some of their lives are woven together and kind of like a root system. And it's it's more complicated than I can even explain, but... Um, I think it's definitely a worthy a worthy read. My son read this one, so he's in his twenties, his early twenties. So um, he loved it, and he's a kind of environmentally minded and more of an activist than I am. He loved it. I was a little bit more like, "Wow, that was that was something." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I I'm glad I read it, and it's one of those that I would like to come back to because I think there's so much in there that I just I didn't get. And I would need to reread it, but I'm not sure I, I will for 500 pages. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I want a book that's 500 pages because I'm going through it quickly. But then it's usually the heavy ones that actually are 500 pages. Yeah, it's dense. It's not it's not a quick read. Yeah. Um, the other one I have is called The Language of Flowers by Vanessa Diffenbaugh. And this one is is a much easier read, Not not really in terms of plot necessarily um it's about a a young woman who's raised in the foster care system or comes up through the foster care system she's not really raised by it so there's some difficult themes in there in terms of abandonment and um loss and grief and whatnot but she connects with this victorian way of um understanding flowers and the meaning of flowers and how they conveyed they were used back in Victorian times to convey certain emotions or expressions and so she kind of gets into the floral business and has a real gift for matching her customers um, needs and scenarios and where they are in life and what they want to express or convey to their people with like the perfect floral bouquet for their situation in life. So that's sort of like a, a little bit of a subplot. But there's also some, like I said, some heavy themes in there, too. She goes through a lot and is kind of, um, you know, trying to come to terms with her with her childhood and her difficult experiences. But it's a really interesting book, um, a quick read. I read this one with my book club, so it's great for discussion. There's just lots of um, fodder in there for good conversation. So, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, another one that for me kind of I think matches that is The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, which is um, it's told from both the mother and the daughter's perspective so you're you're seeing like the past and the present at the same time and i don't know have you guys heard of poo air tea no so it's a fermented tea that's packed into bricks and it will have a very it'll have a pattern on the front a design on the front that identifies it as where it came from and so this was used a lot on the silk road as a way to preserve teas to be carried um, long, long distances. But the you can identify there'd be a long tradition for each village of the design on the bricks. So we're in China, and there's a young woman who becomes pregnant before she's engaged. Um, and I think the engagement had started, but the father was drafted into the military or or had to run from the military, something like that. Um, and so he was uncontactable. So they couldn't, she could have married him to save her child 
if she could have contacted him. And so she ends up sneaking off to give the child up for adoption. And that child she sends off with a cake of pu'er tea. And so the child grows up in America. Um, and because of the, I mean, there's a lot about international adoptions in there. And especially, I think this happened, I forget when it's set, but it's definitely not current. It's set in some of the earlier adoptions from China. And so they were very closed and very hard to track. And all she has is this brick of tea. So as her high school graduation present, her adoptive parents take her on a trip to China, do the best they can to track down her family. And, and by doing that, they learn the whole history of Pu Erti and of, of how these you see from the mom's side of the story, the tea growing practices and the history there and a lot of the like um you know sometimes we mostly hear about urban china and this is very much rural and village life you get to see some of those customs so i thought it was very fascinating from that point of view but it also comes with a book club questions for discussion because there are some it is written at a level where i think almost anyone could read it but there's some very mature topics that one sounds good Mm kind of want to read that you can put it up for your book club yeah there you go i like a book that comes with ready-made questions too because i'm lazy and i don't like to have to go out and or make my own questions or find questions from some other book clubs so yeah Mm -hmm. they're right there in the back of the book that works yeah so my last historic one isn't, I saved it for last because it's not super historic. I think it's set in the 70s or 80s. And some of you might, I don't know. Are you familiar with The Girl of the Limberlost? No. This was one of those like back of the library. I spent a lot of time in libraries. <laughs> and this is one I stumbled upon. It's about a girl. Um, she's lives with her grandma, I believe, and they're very poor. They live in the swamp, the Limberlosts, um, which is... Is, well, it's, it's more of a marsh. It's in the Great Woods of Wisconsin, but there was marshland there, uh, and it's going to be drained for oil. There's a botanist um, who shows up, and he is trying to collect insect species, trying to find um, something rare or um, preservable to save this swamp. And so she puts herself through high school by selling insect specimens to him. And so you learn a lot about just the insects and the ecosystem and I had completely forgotten about it until I started putting this book list together and I'm gonna go back and read it. I haven't read it since high school but it's it does come there's a book about her and then there's a book from the botanist's point of view interesting so and that reminded me of where the crawdads sing yes it will very much remind you okay of that. Did, did either of you read that one Okay. I didn't, I will admit, I did not love that book and I was in the absolute minority. It has like 1 million awesome reviews. I didn't either. <laughs> okay. But now Netflix has the movie version of it that just came out and it's really good. I hate to say this because I de- typically don't believe this, but I believe the movie was better than the book. <laughs> Every once in a while it happens. Yeah. My problem is I'm not really big on those. The books that make, like, I couldn't stand To Kill a Mockingbird. That was the most painful read of my life. Oh. Not because I didn't. Uh, do you want me to skip that? No. Okay, just I'm like, going to. Uh, tell us why. So, 
Not because I didn't appreciate the story it was telling. It was just the driest writing I've ever read because it was so focused on telling its point that I just could not, I couldn't get into the story. I can see that. Um, And so sometimes, but I've watched movie versions of To Kill a Mockingbird that fixed that for me. Yeah. That were able to add that connectability in because I did I appreciated the story that that book was telling very well I just it was a very um, it took effort to read it and so this one the where the crawdad sings was the same for me yeah and this book they told a very important social justice ish story but at the same time gave me the setting and the descriptions to make it also an easy read yeah, I think that's a valid point. I did not read or watch Where the Crawdads Sing because I listened to some podcasts about it and it got terrible reviews. <laughs> so I didn't. But I've heard from a lot of people that the movie is definitely better. And then I also heard that that author is wanted for murder. What? <laughs> like questioning in a murder. I heard so I was that just too. Like, oh, I'm going to skip that one. Yeah. So she, her whole professional life has been as a nature writer and you can tell that when you read the book i thought those were the best parts of the book her actual nature writing and then i thought sort of some of the dialogue and whatnot was was weaker but i did enjoy the movie so i will say that and then that reminded me of one other book oh my gosh i'm going off on a tangent this is what happens when you get a reader on the podcast the signature of all things by elizabeth gilbert that has serious planty themes in it it is a a huge tome it's like 500 pages another one of those and it's about a botanist and it's set i think in like the 19th century or 18th century or something i haven't read it but i've heard amazing things about it i haven't read that book but i think i've read other elizabeth gilbert did she write lab girl no, but no, that's another that's great another one. Plan. That's a memoir. I can't remember who wrote it. Yeah. It I'll was, look these up mm-hmm. while you guys, because you were going to talk about poetry. Yes. And then I will look up Elizabeth Gilbert and okay. Lab Girl. Okay. So we're going to make a hard turn here into poetry <laughs> from talking about a Netflix movie to poetry. But I did want to re- uh, recommend a couple poets, um, Mary Oliver and Wendell Berry, they both write not necessarily about gardening per se, but about the natural world. And what I love about them, I am not typically into poetry. I find it difficult and too challenging for my limited attention span mostly. But these two poets are very accessible, very conversational. It's the kind of poem that you can read once and really understand it and sink into it and get something out of it. Um, just very beautiful writing, but also not not intimidating, not scary, not anything that you think of when, you know, when you might think of poetry. So yeah, Mary Oliver and Wendell Berry. I may have to try those. I typically am a little nervous about poetry because uh, sometimes the connections go over my head but I will say the parts of you know nature related novels that I love do tend to be the very poetic descriptions there you of go plant life I told them before we started recording that my high school English teacher Beth hi Beth maybe you're <laughs> listening gave she she tried so hard to teach me poetry, um, really believed in me. She really worked. And at the end, just said, you know, not your thing. Gave me a pass. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's fine. But I hope 
to try. I'm going to try this. I promise. I'm going to give you one Mary Oliver poem, and then if you don't like it, I will stop talking. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> okay, so I looked up our those authors. Um, people are going to be screaming at us in their car or wherever they're listening, because Elizabeth Gilbert wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, I why mean, I remember. I do. I did know that. Oh, okay. I did know that, but then well, I got distracted with the conversation about Lab Girl. Yeah, so I was like, where did I know that name? Yes, it is Eat, Pray, Love. Lab Girl was written by Hope Jaron. And that's, a J. Uh, that's also a memoir. So yes. Pray Love is a memoir, and so is, is Lab Girl. They couldn't be more different, but they're both good. I mean, I liked Eat, Pray, Love. I know that's another controversial one that people either love or hate, but I did like it. I hated it. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know if I can work for you anymore. No. <laughs> it was good. I mean, I think I like her writing, but there were just, I was like, are you just bragging now? <laughs> like, I think that's all it is. It's a little self-involved. It, Yeah. I mean, but what memoir isn't? Isn't that sort of the whole point of memoir? It's like you're it's writing true. about yourself. I like, love all the jokes about the, like, um, influencers now who are writing memoirs and they're like 22 <laughs> right like what life experience do you have no offense to our younger <laughs> listeners but just wait a little bit for your memoir yeah it'll be longer <laughs> that's right well at least if you write one when you're 22 you can write another one when you're 35 and then another one when you're 50 you get like four books out of your that's life true. instead of one Fair point. Barack Obama style. <laughs> right? Okay, take us a different direction. Okay, so yes, I'm going to go a whole other way, and you're going to ask yourself, she's is she losing her mind? And it's possible. But um, I would like to talk about the Wayfarer series. And once again, this is by that author that I mentioned earlier, Becky Chambers. And they wrote this whole series that I think is some of the most incredible world building I've ever heard especially of a contemporary author. And it is about space travel. So it, at this point in the future, humans are involved in the what's called the intergalactic commons. And it's basically just a, a intergalactic government. And the first book is about um, long haul space farers, basically. So they punch wormholes. That's their job so that there's faster travel. Uh, there are four books in the series. They're all very loosely connected, so you can read them out of order. But the one that I think has, they all have a gardening connection in them, all very beautifully put gardening connections, I think. And this author uses gardening as a way to connect humans back to their world, especially at this point, Earth has been destroyed. Fun, right? But they're, they're basically, Earth is not livable anymore, so how do we connect humans back to the planet? But the last book in the series is called The Galaxy and the Ground Within. And it actually doesn't have any humans in it, which I also think is fun. They're, it's all alien species. And they're at a stopover planet in between, um, like, trading sites. And the planet is uninhabitable, but it's basically become, like, an intergalactic truck stop. And all of these ships are down on Earthside visiting a convenience store. And the satellite system goes out so they have to ground everything 
And so all of these species are thrown together when they weren't expecting to stay together. And they spend a lot of their time in a garden that has been well tended by these alien species who's gotten really into gardening on an uninhabitable planet. And they talk about they share their vegetables and fruits from their worlds with each other. And I think it's just a great look at how gardening can bring various cultures together, in this case, aliens, but we see it every day. Now, Hannah, you and I have a shared pet peeve about science fiction, and that is their portrayal of perfectly clean greenhouses. (laughs) Does this series live up to maybe realistic gardening techniques? Absolutely. Yes, it does. And I think you have to keep in mind that a lot of these things that are growing are alien plants, too. So there's like a weird you can't really tell if it would be realistic because you didn't live on an alien planet. Uh, But all throughout the series, there's various plants that they talk about and especially connected to their home planet. So like in the first book, that's about these long haul spacefarers. their chef on the on the ship is focused on getting herbs from their home planets so that they can taste what it would be like with their home food. It kind of keeps them from getting homesick. So he talks about having to procure the seeds and germinate them and um, quarantine them and all of these different things. So I think it lives up to it. I think clearly the author is a gardener. <laughs> I think you should write that question and ask. I will I will try. I bet they have an email. <laughs> <laughs> I mean if they're into space travel, I hope you don't have to write them a, a ground mail letter. <laughs> <laughs> it would be fun, but I do recommend these books. I think they're wonderful. I reread them every so often and especially there's there's one the book before this one is called Record of a Spaceborn Few, and it is only about humans, pretty much. And in this series, humans went one of two ways. They either lived on Mars or they became spacers, where they lived only on spaceships, and they still do. And so they're very focused on creating sustainable practices. So like when people die, they are composted back in to the food source for their ships. And um, it's a very... No, it's a very beautiful, like, stop it, you guys. I'm laughing because I didn't think ship was the word you were going to say. Oh. <laughs> I'm keeping it clean. It is a very beautiful, they have this whole tradition around it and the record keeping. They have a, a job on the ship who's it's that person's job to keep track of everyone who has ever lived on the ship and they can track their family lines and it's nobody has jobs for money they all give in order to keep the ship running because it's what they need and so i i just i think it creates a world that i would love to see in the future if you need something hopeful to think about even if the world is dying now do not read to be taught if fortunate if you want a because that's like a a prequel novella to these and it is sad (laughs) so i would skip that one if you need hopeful hopeful that but if you want to just talk about space travel to be taught if fortunate is also very good and has an excellent tree metaphor in it okay we're gonna wrap up (laughs) 
with kids books. So I did one already, um, but my second kit treat. My second book for kids is called Thank You Trees, and I got it when Hannah and I went to the APGA conference in uh, Portland, and we went to the Hoyt Arboretum. And it's this really cute, it's a board book, and it's uh, all these kids saying, thank you, tree, for a hiding place. Thank you, tree, for food. Thank you, trees, for squirrel homes. But then at the end, and it's watercolor illustrations, at the end, the last two pages are all the trees that they thanked lined up and identified, which I just thought was a cute touch, um, especially since I bought it at an Arboretum. So that sounds so sweet. A board book. Okay, I have Cactus Hotel by Brenda Guberson. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. And Megan uh, Lloyd is the illustrator. So this is, the age range was like kindergarten to third grade. So I think kindergarten, obviously, if you're reading it to your kids. And then um, older kids who are learning to read on their own. But basically it's about a saguaro cactus and all of the animals that come to live in it through the years because saguaros live forever they live a long time um so they're you know woodpeckers and rabbits and insects and it's just super sweet really cute and even when this world cactus gets old and falls down and it shows how the insects come and live in it and it's decomposing and my kids loved this book it was one of those that we just read you know how some of them they get stuck on them and you read them every single night but i was happy too because i loved it too that sounds super cute. I think I have a vague memory of like sitting on the, the carpet in school and listening to that book because I remember like the woodpecker pecks a hole, then some other animal goes and lives in it. Yeah, and- yeah, that's it. I think it's like there's maybe a burrowing owl that comes in and yeah, right. They move out. The next one comes in. I love the idea of like a hotel for animals. I do too. That's really cute. Yeah. So I used to work in education, so I have three (laughs) kids' books that I'm going to talk you through. Um, One of my favorites, it's a more recent book, is called Kate Who Tamed the Wind. And it is about a little girl named Kate who plants trees at the top of a hill for her elderly neighbor so that the wind doesn't blow through his house so quickly. (laughs) And it's gorgeous, and it follows her through as she grows up, and she cares for the trees for him. And then when she's an adult, she comes back, and they have a picnic among the trees that she planted. So I think it's a nice book about just trees in general, windbreaks, which we don't talk enough about, and then also service. I think it's it's a lot of fun. So I recommend that one. Um, One that is good for really young kids, and this is a whole series. It's like up and down series, I think, somewhere along that. And I've read a lot of different versions of it. But this one is called Up in the Garden and Down in the Dirt. And I've also read Up in the Forest and Down in the... There, there's And there's Night and Day. They have a whole series of them. They're all wonderful. But this one really follows like what's going on in the garden above the soil and what's going on below the soil. So it's a fun way to teach young kids, especially. I think it's a board book about um, the importance of good soil, which I know Sarah believes in firmly. (laughs) And finally is The Night Tree. And this one we put on um, the Arboretum social media last year about 
right before Christmas because it is a Christmas book. So if you celebrate Christmas, it's a good one for that. But it's about a family that creates food garlands every year and then on Christmas Eve they go out into the forest and they decorate the tree with these you know popcorn and apple and dried oranges and then they sit quietly and wait to see what animals come out and eat on their tree and it's a beautiful I think Christmas Eve tradition for that family and I think I've heard that quite a few families have taken this on now since we talked about this book so it's a beautiful book that's sweet that is so cute um okay well i mean i think that we could talk about books for like another hour we could for sure um so maybe this will be an annual episode but we do have to wrap up today because people have to go you know get their books and have time to read them (laughs) so hannah what plant are you thinking of this week the plant i am thinking about this week is something i should have thought about before you asked me (laughs) oh yes (laughs) Sarah reminded me that I am thinking about my Christmas cactus. I have a Christmas cactus that I neglect most of the time. And I've heard that that's the way to take care of Christmas cactus. So I just do it. I bought it for myself a couple years ago as an end of semester gift to myself. And I continue to get it to bloom at Christmas. So I'm pretty proud of myself. It's beautiful. Get yourself a Christmas or Thanksgiving cactus if you can. My Christmas cactus always blooms not at Christmas. Then you might have a Thanksgiving or Easter cactus. Yeah. Because so. mine's, mine's a Thanksgiving cactus because it bloomed it blooms predictably at Thanksgiving every year. And then my grandma has one, or maybe it's not my grandma, someone has one that blooms in the spring and it's like an Easter cactus. So there's different kinds I and they're all that. like look the same. Okay. Yeah. I had no idea. I just thought it's blooming at the wrong time. So I must have a... Maybe. I, I can't remember when yeah. mine blooms, actually. You must have a something else cactus. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> a something cactus. Okay, so my plant? Yeah, what's your plant? My plant is um, a bald cypress tree, actually. That's in my office right now. Um, because my son, it's actually my son Noah's tree. And he brought it into my office because our offices are rather chilly, <laughs> which I'm finding out in the last week or so. And the bald cypress needs a chillier environment so that it can drop its needles and go into dormancy. Um, But my colleagues here just reminded me that an even better place for it would be in our greenhouse. So I may take Noah's bald cypress up to the greenhouse for the rest of the winter and have it go dormant up there. Yeah. And talking about that reminded me of my two plants I'm going to be thinking about is my bay tree and my rosemary which I take to the greenhouse every winter along with Bob's and they our greenhouse through the winter stays just over freezing. So we it's our shade house during the summer and we put a roof on it and we heat it just enough to stay like 36 degrees. And so it's the perfect place to overwinter those things that need winter but aren't quite hardy in Nebraska winter. The problem is that Um, bay leaves, as most of you know, are used to make soup. And soup making season is when my bay tree lives down at the greenhouse. And so I'm always forgetting to go get my bay leaves. So that's what I'm going to do today when we leave. You're going to go go harvest some bay leaves? Go harvest some bay leaves and take them home so I have them to make soup with when I need to. I love that you have a bay tree 
tree? We have them. At, it's a tree. It's it's also called laurel, which if you hear English okay. stories, they'll talk a lot about the laurel trees in England. Um, it mines a bush because I kept getting its top froze off because I wouldn't bring it in soon enough. So it's a bush. But we sell them at Spring Affair. So most of us have one. Uh, the best place for it in the winter is our greenhouse. All right. I may have to put that on my list for Spring Affair. It's a perk of working here. Greenhouse access. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Michelle, and for talking about books. Yeah, we really fun. are grateful to have you. And yes, like Sarah said, we will keep talking about books. Feel free to write us with your book recommendations. Put them on social media when we post this so you can share them about. And if you have any questions, email us, of course. You can also send us a speak pipe message and maybe we'll feature it on here. Please rate and review us everywhere you listen to podcasts. It really helps us out. So don't forget to do that while you have a little bit of extra time, maybe. And Bloombox and Bloombox Growing Deeper are both programs of the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum. Mm-hmm.